Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 111, A Conversation with Mary Jane Glead. Mary Jane is a family nurse practitioner with a focus in women's health. She received her doctorate of nursing practice at Creighton University, and her focus then was the identification and management of women at high risk for breast cancer. Her experience is in family practice, rural medicine, women's health, and cancer risk assessment, and she holds certifications in cancer genetics and risk assessment. She is a huge advocate for preventive medicine and currently practices in Lincoln, Nebraska, where she started a high-risk breast cancer and high-risk genetics clinic. She also coordinates a multidisciplinary breast cancer clinic to expedite and optimize care for women. On today's episode, we discuss how to calculate your breast cancer risk and who qualifies for genetic testing, how it's done, basically everything that you have ever wanted to know about genetic testing. And we also talk about barriers that some people face and and why it's important to get genetic testing, which is a question that I think comes up a lot. We also talk about what you can do at a young age if you are at risk, but you're not screening yet for breast cancer. And I think this is going to, this is an important point for women who have been diagnosed with breast cancer and have younger children and are wondering and worrying about their risk. This was a really informative and wonderful conversation, and I'm really excited for all of you to listen. And with that, it is my honor to welcome Mary Jane Glade to the Interlude podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Hi, Mary Jane. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hello. Thank you for having me. So we had talked on Instagram about, you know, I know you have a, you have a focus on genetics and I really wanted to bring someone on the podcast to talk about cancer and genetics. It's such a topic that we really need to broaden education on and just kind of continue having these conversations. So thank you for being here. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about who you are, what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a nurse practitioner. I have my doctoral in nursing practice, and I've been practicing for uh, 15 years now. So um, the last, uh, before this position, I was doing women's health. um, And so I started a program at an OBGYN practice for screening for high-risk women for cancer genetics and increased risk of breast cancer and starting some different screening for those women. We found a lot of um, women who did carry, you know, genetic mutations that changed the risk of ovarian or breast cancer, other cancers, and then um, also just really early stage breast cancers or, you know, abnormal lesions that we were able to remove by changing their screening patterns and finding earlier. So that led me to just a love of, you know, women treating women with breast cancer, genetics, risk assessment. And so about a year and a half ago, I started up a clinic in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I do high risk 
genetics. I see high-risk women for breast cancer. I started the first multidisciplinary clinic for breast cancer in Lincoln, um, which is a great service to our patients who are newly diagnosed. And so I have a great patient population now of those that have mutations and those that are at risk outside of mutations. And so I just have a definite passion and love for, for finding these women and men and kind of changing their screening patterns for them. That's really incredible. You know, I'd like to kind of start off by talking about how we identify those that are at risk, because what I find is very often people, one, are either not aware of their family history or are not aware that their family history is increasing their risk. Can we talk about what those risk factors are and, you know, how you were identifying those women or what patients can do is listening to this and saying, hi, I wonder what my risk is. Yeah, absolutely. So really, you know, it does first and foremost, start with having these conversations with your family members, you know, where, wherever you're getting together or through social media outlets, or if you hear that, you know, a relative has been diagnosed with the cancer, try to, you know, get some details from them. So you have a better understanding of what type of cancer they had, how old they were when they were diagnosed, because those are all key components that we need to determine, you know, who fits the best criteria or should be referred or undergo cancer risk assessment and potentially genetics. So um, in my other program, we started just using a screener, a paper screener that talked about some really high risk cancers, such as young breast cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, um, younger uterine cancer, um, also just other prostate cancers and things like that, that you know, a lot of women, when we're talking specifically about breasts, they don't know that, you know, a dad with prostate cancer can affect their cancer risk, you know? Um, so kind of getting the information out there, but with just a real quick, easy screener, yes or no. If they uh, selected a yes for certain questions, then we knew definitely that was where our conversation was going to go. Uh, but you're absolutely right. A lot of people don't know their family history or um, don't know if the a female in their family had uterine cancer or ovarian cancer, which definitely affects whether or not, you know, we need to incorporate genetics into their care plan. And I'll add to that by saying that a lot of times when we think about family history, we're thinking about immediate family and it's not just immediate family. So it is your grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and second cousins, all of that kind of paints a picture of what is happening on the side of the family. Yeah, absolutely. Sisters, brothers, even your own children. You know, I see some women who come in that their daughter had breast cancer and they don't think it relates to, you know, what their risk is, but it all, yes, you're absolutely right. All the family members, and especially when we start linking various cancers on one side of the family, we go up in multiple generations to look at how that affects each individual. Now, in a perfect world, everyone is going to their primary care, their OB, their gynecologist, and they're getting either they're being asked about their updated family history at every visit. And I think it's just not happening. Right. Uh, Absolutely. You know, for a number of reasons, you're coming in, you've got three other things you need to talk about. There's no time. It just kind of doesn't happen. Uh, But I think it then paints a false sense of security that people think, oh, well, you know, no one talked to me about this. So everything will be okay. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. They, they think, you know, they're going in, they're getting a full well-rounded physical question answer and <clears throat> all their risk is taken care of. But that's very true is there's not very many people who are specialized, right. In cancer risk assessment and understand kind of what are the red flags. You know, I always relate it to if your father or mother had a heart attack at a young age, 
we're going to start doing something early, right? We're going to start talking about smoking cessation, checking your cholesterol panel, maybe doing some additional heart screenings. But if you go in and your mother had breast cancer at 48, there's not always that much recommendation, right? What should we be doing? That's a a candidate for genetics or cancer risk assessment. So um, it does, in my community, it's a lot of education, a lot of educating for the primary care providers, OBGYNs. But I think patients are really savvy these days. And we have a lot out there on social media um, and even in different different avenues that they can find out about information, taking an online assessment um, and then taking that into your provider and saying, hey, I'm concerned about my family history or my risk. What do you recommend? And if they don't have resources, then trying to find somebody in the community or asking them to find somebody that they can go talk to about their risk. You know, I, I think that those are really, really valid points. One of the things that I try to tell patients about is when you go to your primary care, to your gynecologist, is be very vocal about what has changed in your family history, even if someone's not asking you, or even if you go to your oncologist, you know, sometimes I think that, you know, this is such a specialized place that everyone's going to tell me if they have an update to their family history and people don't. Um, So I think it's an important point to really make sure that you are saying you are asking directly as a patient, you know, I have this change in my family history. Does this mean anything for me? Uh, what should I be doing differently now that so-and-so let's say has been diagnosed with breast cancer? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Advocating for yourself and, and presenting that information is, is key, you know, to making sure that we're doing everything appropriate for that individual to hopefully prevent the cancer or just understand their risk a lot better. Can you talk about some of the most common genetic syndromes that you see that are being tested for? Yes, absolutely. So um, we now know that there are lots of genes, right? Back in ni- back in the 90s, we learned about the BRCA1 and 2, BRCA1 and 2 genes. We consider those HBOC, hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome. So risk of breast cancer can be as high as 87%, risk of ovarian cancer as high as 64 So those are very, very well known if we talk about hereditary cancer syndromes. Um, but there are so many other syndromes that we know about now that are not real commonly talked about. Um, and one that doesn't include necessarily breast is Lynch syndrome. So there are multiple genes that can change your risk of colon and endometrial or uterine cancer. Um, so that's a syndrome that we classify as Lynch syndrome. There There's familial polyposis syndromes where there's high risk for colon cancer based on findings of multiple polyps in the colon on some imaging or screening colonoscopies. Uh, There's Leifermini syndrome, there's Pitts-Jagers syndrome, there's multiple other syndromes that can affect various risks of cancer. Uh, But the well-known ones are the hereditary breast and ovarian cancer and Lynch syndrome. And what do you do? So let's say you have a person who came to your clinic, you've identified that they have a higher risk of having one of these syndromes, you send them for genetics. Talk, talk us through that process. Yeah. So I get a lot of just cancer risk assessment. So, um, primary cares or OBGYNs will be concerned about a family history and then the patient will be referred, or I get a lot of self-referrals where they heard about, um, me through the, through the community and they're concerned about their risk. And so when they come in for a visit, I go through their whole, um, family history with them, surgical history, personal medical history, medications. A lot of times I'll do a pedigree. So a three to four generation pedigree where I sit 
sit down and it really helps them sometimes a lot of really a lot of the time find more family members in their head than they wrote down on any intake form as they start drawing you know circles and squares for females and males they start saying oh wait that that person had cancer too you know and so it really lays it out there for them of like how interconnected some of these cancers can be um, so we go through a full cancer risk assessment um, for females we talk about breast health if they've had breast biopsies their breast density and then we have the conversation about what genetic testing looks like um, and what information that can provide. So can you talk a little bit about what actual genetic testing means in terms of the just getting it done? I think a lot of people aren't really, they know it happens, but not necessarily aware about how it happens. Yeah. So um, to actually collect the sample, there's, there's three different ways you can get a sample depending on um, which laboratory you're using. But you can do a saliva test, which is really a very small amount of saliva. So we don't like you to eat or drink anything for about 30 minutes before obtaining that sample. Blood samples are the most reliable. So a quick blood draw and we send that in. And usually it takes um, three weeks or so to get results back. We can get them faster for considering a certain surgery. We can do stat results. Uh, but the turnaround time is very quick now and labs are fast. You know, they can do next generation sequencing, really targeting the DNA and looking at these genes quickly. Um, so before in the past, costs was a prohibitive uh, factor, you know, time-wise it was prohibitive or again, we couldn't find a provider that understood it or that knew it. Um, also before when we were looking at just BRCA1 and 2, we, you know, we kind of had this idea that there was something in the family, but a lot of times that would be negative. So now when we have panel tests, we're able to do more at one time. So we don't, uh, we do bigger panels. So we catch more people because we have more genes that we're looking at in those individuals. So it's a fairly simple visit. I usually take about 30 to 45 minutes, just depending on history. So come in, we have our conversation, blood work or saliva test. Um, and then I usually see them back in a couple of weeks to go over their results. I'm curious about how you counsel people about, so let's take a step back. There's different panels that you can order, right? There's more kind of narrow six to eight gene tests, just looking for breast cancer. And then there's these 60 gene panels. And what we see a lot of is people who say, well, what am I going to do with these results? Right. What if I have a mutation in something that I can't, there's no screening or I can't do anything about so what is the counseling that you do in those situations before making that decision about which panel to order? Right. So um, the majority of the time I talk to patients about clinically actionable panels. So genes that we truly know about what the cancer risks are and how to screen. So the majority of the time we're doing a panel that we know what to do with these results, because that can be very anxiety provoking if I tell somebody they have a mutation and I really don't know what that means yet. Um, so I prefer to do something where we do have the information. If we're concerned about, you know, newer, newer cancers that we're learning about genetics, you know, then we talk about the risks and benefits of that, you know, doing something and finding a mutation and watching it, but also treating them on their family history. You know, people that come in with a family history, we don't just look at their genetics. Um, they may have a family history of breast cancer and they have a genetic result that's a high risk for colon cancer. Well, I'm not going to ignore their family history for breasts. We do screen, and that would be the similar situation as if we're concerned about a family history of cancer and we're doing genetics to help inform us about how to screen this individual, we're still going to look at that family history, no matter what that genetic result is. 
um, at least what we see here, I mean, I think we, we sometimes see people, you know, a lot of people really want to get genetic testing done. And a lot of times people are hesitant and, you know, don't want to know, um, do you kind of come across that as well? And, and what do you, how do you talk to those patients? Yeah. I, I honestly have a pretty good hit rate because I am really very good about kind of listening to the, or I feel anyways, t- listening to the patient's concerns. And if it's a patient that does not have cancer, um, you know, I really validate that this is an unknown for them, but they've been touched by cancer at some point in their life, right? So I talk to them about, we have, we have the power to sometimes be preventative. And a lot of the times we can be that way if we are testing at appropriate times and with appropriate people, this is arming them with information that without this, I, I don't know how to manage them well, you know? So if somebody, a female comes in and wants to do hormone therapy, and I don't know if there's a genetic mutation that changes the risk of cancer, I can't really safely say, okay, let's go ahead and do that. Right. So I want to know the information. And I really, really got into genetics quite a bit because of ovarian cancer. You know, we know that there's no screening for ovarian cancer and it's, it's preventable, right? If we identify those people that um, have mutations or that have an increased risk, and I never want anybody to get a second cancer diagnosis, you know, so in the breast world, I'll talk to them about that. You know, we have the ability to understand your breast cancer better, treatment options, screening, but also prevention of other cancers, you know. Um, so that was a big, a big pull for me to get into, to do something for women. Cause we know that 25% of women with ovarian cancer have a mutation that's changing their risk. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times we identify these mutations after the person's already been diagnosed. And while I think that's still really helpful because it can change the trajectory, not only for their family members, their children, it can also potentially open the door for new therapies, such as with PARP inhibitors for BRCA mutations and things like that. But, you know, in a perfect world, you would find these before people were diagnosed. Yes, I do say that. I I will tell a lot of people, you know, if you are getting this diagnosis in an oncology office, we have failed in the preventative world, you know, because we have the tools, we have the screenings, we have providers. We have Zoom now. We can ship kits to people. They can spit the, the saliva spit test in their house and ship it in. Um, you know, and we have we have wonderful people that are aware of genetics and can manage these individuals. And so I truly believe, just like you're saying, if we had the ability to, to find more people early on, we would have a lot of cancer prevention. And I mean, it, you know, I, I completely agree with you. It opens up a huge like there's so many other issues, right? Life insurance and discrimination, discrimination for life insurance. And, you know, I think also in BRCA, when we talk about, you know, getting your ovaries removed at a young age, that's very hard. And, you know, I see a lot of women who are diagnosed and they have young children and it kind of begs the question, well, how old do you wait for the children to turn before you talk to them about this and before mm-hmm. they get testing, do you have recommendations for kind of what you guys do in your practice in terms of how old people should be before they start doing the screening? Yeah. So for genetic testing, the uh, adult age of consent in Nebraska is 19. So um, I will do it at 19 as if, you know, we have a full conversation and, and they're aware of the results and, you know, what this means for them. And, you know, it's, it's, sometimes an easier diagnosis to get in your early twenties, I think, especially for BRCA, because you've got some time, right? Um, It's really tough to tell a 38 year old that 
you know, you're thinking about more children, but now's the time to have your ovaries removed, right? And we're behind on our breast screening. So, um, so there's goods and bads with all of that. But I do have the conversation with those young individuals and do you know what this means? And, and let's understand this better. Because if we know there's a mutation in the family, um, and they're asking about their children, then they have some awareness, you know, but also, um, it really helps them to be able to make decisions, but it might be that they're negative, you know, there's a 50, 50 chance. And so having those conversations is, I think is really important because giving a, a young female a negative result when their mom, you know, has a BRCA mutation and is going through cancer treatment, is also a little bit empowering for them too, I think. I, I agree. I, I... And the point being, too, that you don't necessarily have to act on the results right Right. away, Mm -hmm. right? But you can be prepared, you can start thinking about it. And I think really the key here is is, is preparedness and thinking about, you know, just how to have those conversations, what this means, so that you're right, you're not 38 and it's all of a sudden being kind of sprung on you very quickly. Absolutely, yeah. And sometimes we can't, we can't prevent that, you know, or it's just the timing of everything coming together. Um, but yeah, the preparedness is, is key. You know, what does this look like and, and how can we help you through every step of the way and, and be preventative in every means, but absolutely, you know, for BRCA, we don't start breast screening until 25, but I, I talk to them about, you know, birth control pills used to reduce the risk of ovarian cancer, how to do a breast exam, you know, how to have health awareness, you know, what to be doing exercise, you know, it just is important to establish those healthy lifestyles beforehand as early as we can, honestly. And it has been shown that even for people who have a genetic mutation, some of that risk can be modified by lifestyle choices. Absolutely. A lot of times people think, well, I don't, you know, exercise is for those non-genetic cancers and that's Mm -hmm. actually not, not right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, That's wonderful. Now, what I wanted to mention also when we talk about breast cancer, I think it's, um, and we talk about BRCA specifically, a really, really important point is that all of these mutations, especially BRCA, but all of them increase your risk, not necessarily just for one cancer. And when you're getting the results and having that counseling, that post-result counseling session, you really need to figure out what cancers am I at risk for? So it's not going to be just that one particular one that you were concerned about. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So because we have big panel tests, I can't really guide them on their pre-test counseling visit about this is what your plan is going to look like, right? Because sometimes I get a completely, the other, you know, the other day I had a, an individual with all of her family history is colon and she came back bracket two positive. So I didn't have that discussion ahead of time of like, this is what it's going to look like, you know, um, because she was totally shocked when it came back that there's, there's no family history of breast cancer, but she also didn't have very many females in their family history either. So, um, but yeah, talking through them about what we can do to reduce her risk. So with BRCA2, you know, it's, we do earlier breast screening. So we would do an MRI starting at age 25, add a mammogram at age 30, but it's also important for them to have melanoma screening. So going in to see a dermatologist or having somebody do a good skin check on them is important. So her cancer risk for melanoma slightly increased over the general population. And, and then yes, ovarian cancer. So talking through what she could do for prevention now to reduce her risk, but also what that looks like down the road. So yes, most of the genes are not just one organ or cancer risk. Most of them have multiple um, risk, risks for different cancers on, on each gene. 
And we're also still learning. You know, one of the things that we don't really know a lot about is we know that BRCA mutations increase your risk for pancreatic cancer. But this is a big gray area because we don't know who should be screened. Right now, it still seems like if only you should be screened if you have a BRCA mutation and a family history of pancreatic cancer. But then what is the best modality for screening? There's different tools. And, and so a lot of these people, at least over here in New Jersey, we have a number of centers in New York that are doing screening trials for yes. pancreatic cancer screening. And so we actually really try to get patients into those studies so that they're, yep. you know, kind of one, it's going to be covered. Um, you're not going to be hit with these out of huge bills because they're not, char- you know, charging. And, and also, at least we have some more information because clinical trials help everybody. Right, exactly. Yeah, there are quite a few ongoing clinical trials for mutation carriers. So I provide them with force material and then I'll still direct them to clinicaltrials.gov so they can search to see for those mutation carriers or for family history risk, if there's anything that they would qualify to kind of help us better understand it for others. Absolutely. Talk to me, let's switch gears a little bit and talk to me now about this multidisciplinary clinic what you're doing there, what that looks like. Yeah. So, um, you know, I really felt like uh, the women of our community needed a more collaborative, cohesive um, plan of care for their newly diagnosed breast cancer, because, you know, getting called and told over the phone that you have breast cancer. And now I want you to go to three different appointments and have, you know, all, all over town and go see different people. I was like, we've got to be able to do this, do this better and incorporating genetics and risk assessment and everything. So, Um, So women who have a biopsy that shows they have breast cancer, um, usually whoever ordered that biopsy reaches out to me and says, I have a new patient. And then within 24 hours, I call them, go through the pathology. And then every Wednesday morning, we have a clinic and four to five uh, newly diagnosed breast cancer patients come through, sometimes not always that many, Um, but then the whole team. So Um, The radiation oncologist, the medical oncologist, the breast surgical oncologist, our nurse navigators, radiologists, pathologists all get together at a pre-visit conference. So we all are in person and we sit down and we go through the initial, maybe that's the initial screening mammogram, all the way down to the pathology. I go through their history and then we talk about the plan for the patient. And so after that conference, then each provider has an hour or more if they need it to meet with the patient. And so the surgical oncologist will go in and talk with the patient, the medical oncologist, radiation oncologist. I discuss genetics or any follow-up that's needed to be done. Um, Our nurse navigator is here for support. So usually by the end of that one morning, they go out of here and they have the next thing is surgery. Um, So we kind of streamlined it just so it would be a little bit more collaborative and ease for the patient and feel like they were having a real team-based approach. Cause I know we have multidisciplinary clinics all over the country. Um, And I, you know, we have a great community. I love women staying and feeling like they can be taken care of here in our community. So, um, so it's been great. The feedback's been wonderful. It's, it goes really smoothly for the patients. I don't, there's no paperwork or anything. They just show up that morning and, and that we take care of them. Really wonderful you know, to kind of get everything all at once. Now, sometimes, and just more as a personal question, you know, sometimes we'll try, we don't, we don't have, we have a multidisciplinary program in that sense, but we're not doing it all in the same day, you know? So 
And we've tried this and there are some days where I will see the patient right after the yes. oncologist or, you know, they're coming in for their post-op and then I'll see them, you know, an hour later. And sometimes I find that it's like information overload that mm-hmm. they don't have a chance to necessarily process. They've gone from, okay, you have this diagnosis of breast cancer to here's this, you know, six month plan laid out for you. Right. Do you find that people get overwhelmed? And if so, like, how do you start to help with that? Yeah, I was, I was concerned about that, you know, um, but what we do talk about it and the patients, we do a distress monitor. So we do a distress sale from NCCN um, before they see any provider. So once when they're getting in the room and then we ask them where they're at at the end of the visits and always drops, you know, they always feel so much more comfortable. And for me, what I've seen is that when you're seeing them kind of back to back, like you don't walk out of there with questions that are unanswered because you're done with a provider. And then you start to think, oh, I should have asked this question. And then another provider comes in. So they're able to just like, okay, well, I didn't ask this before, but can I ask it of you? And then they're getting a lot of more of their answers because uh, what I saw in the back end a little bit when they would go to different offices is they would be calling for their questions and, you know, the medical oncologist and surgeon hadn't had a chance to talk yet or they hadn't seen the other one. So really, I think it's helped in that they are like, I can ask the same thing to different people, but also they're hearing the same thing consecutively three times, right? Like, and then even when I always go in at the very end and ask them how they're doing and and see if they feel okay with things. And they're always usually very relieved and say, this was great, you know, and then we follow up with them. So I, they have our, my number and I usually call them within a week and then our nurse navigator will call them within a week and just see how they're feeling about things. Um, yeah, it's not for everybody, right? It's not, it's not a care model that's going to be perfect for everybody, but from what we've seen, like they really appreciate it and, and feel very good at the end of their visit. Well, and it has, it does have a lot of benefits because again, people are seeing everyone. They're not for now, like they don't have to take off all this time from work for multiple yes. appointments and yes. they have to worry about scheduling the appointments. Do you have an order in which people go in or is it just everyone's like tag teaming? Yeah, and- tag teaming. Um, I mean, it's a little helpful if I can get the surgeon and the medical oncologist to go in before the radiation oncologist, right? Um, but what we've also found is that a lot of women don't even know that they would get radiation until after surgery. So it's really helped to kind of prepare them for what is this next couple months going to look like, right? When they do have radiation there. Um, but usually it's who's ever, sometimes it depends on the case. If we have a, you know, triple negative, or we know somebody's going to need neoadjuvant chemotherapy, it's going to be the medical oncologist that's going to go in first. And then the other one that we're thinking, maybe lumpectomy, I'll send the surgeon in for. So, um, but yeah, we kind of talk about that, but sometimes it's just, pick a room and, you know, head on in and we have little tags. So we know who's and where and a board. So we track that everybody got in there. And so, yeah, we've, we've, we've ironed out a lot of kinks, but it's pretty good. That's really incredible that you've been able to do that and have commitment from the team to really show up on those days and be present and not have any other commitments. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They've been great. And there was some hesitation for these concerns and I said, well, we got to start somewhere. We'll trial it. And if we see that, you know, it doesn't work or, or it is too overwhelming, then we'll readjust, you know, but everybody's been really pleasantly surprised at how well it, the patients are receptive of it. And, and you're right. Taking off a bunch of appointments before you even have surgery or treatment is tough because you want to save a lot of that for when you really 
needed down the road. And then once they kind of have a plan, then they go off with whoever, right? So if they would get chemo yes. first, then the medical oncologist takes over or surgery. Correct. First. Yes, absolutely. That's a really wonderful approach. I mean, I, I think that we just need more of that in health systems for everything. Right? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Cardiology, I think, does a good job with this because they have really good heart failure clinics and they've got mm-hmm. very good multidisciplinary yes. system in that way. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about some of the hurdles that you see both in genetic testing, running a multidisciplinary clinic, like in your work in general. Yeah. So, um, well, Lincoln's a pretty private town, so we don't have, um, it's private practice as in we don't have a lot of institutions. So that can be a hurdle in that, you know, um, it's just a, a different sense where you don't have everything accessible to you, Right. Um, you don't have all the different disciplines that a lot of different systems have where you you have your definite referrals to here and there. You know the type of care that patients are going to get and it's all in one system so you can access it. You know, we have patients have my charts for three or four different locations or portals and that can get confusing. Um, so that is a little bit of a hurdle, you know, that we deal with in Lincoln. Um, so one of the reasons why that the multidisciplinary clinic is is super effective and works well. And genetics, um, it's a lot of patient hesitation some of the time, but I think with with a good, you know, conversation, some of that fear, because the reality is most people are not carriers. They do not have a hereditary cancer risk. Um, I tell them I see bad family histories every single day, and I rarely get a positive result. You know, one out of 400 people have a BRCA mutation. So they're more nervous thinking they have it. And then I get to tell them they don't have a mutation. And it's a big relief because I think they've set with that thought that there must be something um, for a long time. And then I tell them, obviously, you're genetically negative, but we don't know everything about cancer, right? And I don't know if we ever will. It's just something that's still a lot of unknowns for, for us as providers and, and patients. So, um, and cost used to be a big barrier. Um, for genetics, which I don't have, a, we don't have concerns with anymore. Um, according from the Affordable Care Act, you know, women with a family history suggestive of hereditary breast and ovarian cancer should receive genetic testing and counseling and it's preventative. So it's $0. So no out-of-pocket cost for most of genetic testing. Um, so that was a barrier that we overcame. Um, and then I think also sometimes Patient follow-up, you know, if you're told to do an MRI every year, that can get a little exhausting. And they're like, it was fine last year. I don't need to go again. You know, it's time, it's it's commitment, it's money. Um, so that's one, one way I really try to track my patients and just educate them on, um, you know, different options. So if, if there is a way we can change the screening plan to make it more um, doable for them, I would have that conversation too. But follow up is a is a tough area too. I think that that is something that everyone struggles with because you're right. You're so many tests and so many appointments and so many visits, and especially once you've been diagnosed with cancer, I think there's a certain element of you know whether trauma and PTSD and coming back to the same place over and over again. And a lot of people kind of are like, "Nope, I'm good. Like mm-hmm. I don't want to come back." Um, so I think there's a lot of factors in that. So if someone is listening to this and they're saying, okay, well, I, you know, I don't really have a family history, let's say for breast cancer, I don't really have a strong family history, but 
you know, we know that there are other risk factors for breast mm-hmm. cancer. Can you briefly outline those for me? Yes. So one of the biggest risk factors, is if you've ever received chest radiation um, for any type of cancer lymphoma or anything, that definitely puts you at a higher risk and you should seek somebody out that understands breast cancer screening. So that would be one of the biggest ones outside of a genetic mutation. Um, if you've ever had a biopsy, that is a red flag, you know, because we always want to know what that biopsy showed. Anybody with a typical hyperplasia, Um, on a biopsy or some other pathology findings, we definitely want to get those people in because they need to do additional screening. Dense breast tissue is one where it does increase your risk and not maybe that it necessarily increases your risk very, very high, but yet women with dense breast tissue should have a conversation about additional screening, um, whether that be a automate, you know, whole breast ultrasound or an MRI, but just an understanding that this is something that's unique to you and I want you to be aware about it. And let's talk about what your options are. Um, And then those who, you know, for other risk factors, being obese, alcohol use, never having a baby or having a baby after the age of 30, um, entering menopause very late. So if you go and you don't enter menopause until 55 or after uh, also starting your periods early. So if you start your periods at nine, and you have other risk factors, you may need additional screening. And also, you know, your history of hormone therapy use, um, different different hormones and, and how long and what types you use and all those things can influence your risk of breast cancer as well. You know, and a lot there, those are all, mod, there's modifiable risk factors and not modifiable risk factors. And so it's important to kind of recognize because you can't control the not modifiable risk factors, but we can control the modifiable, our exercise, our activity levels, our alcohol use, our nutrition, all of that. And I will say that there's two calculators, and I don't know if you guys have a preference about which one to use, but there's the Gale model, which is also called the Breast Cancer Risk Assessment Tool, uh, and the Tyracusic model. And all these are publicly available for people to Google, and you can plug in your numbers, and it'll generate a risk score for you. And nothing's perfect, but it kind of is a start to at least have that conversation about you know what, I may be at higher risk than an average person of my age. Right. Yes. That's a great, a great thing for women to do is just learn a little bit more about themselves. And if they come up with some information that says, yeah, they're kind of at that higher end, then seek out somebody that can really help them determine what they should be doing. You know, I've had women who come in who were high risk, you know, and then we were doing screening with them differently. So an MRI and a mammogram and they really changed their lifestyle, dropped their weight and their risk went to the point that, you know, we're like, okay, well, it's not as high as it was. Let's go ahead and maybe back down a little bit, you know, whatever their comfort level is. And, and talking about the Gale model, you know, um, there is medication that can reduce your risk of breast cancer. And um, I know we're looking at various different, different amounts of tamoxifen, you know, there are different agents too, that we can use. And someone with a real strong family history can really benefit from taking medication to prevent their risk. I absolutely thank you for that. Before we wrap up, is tell me about the day a day in your life. What does that look like? Because you're doing lots of different things. So what does yes. a typical day look like for you? Yeah. So I usually have a couple of cancer risk assessments scheduled, some high-risk breast patients that come in for their clinical exams, and then I'll manage their imaging. So I might take them over to get their mammogram done. 
if I have a multidisciplinary clinic patient who I ordered a breast MRI before her visit, I'll run over and sit with her while she's waiting for her MRI and talk to, talk to her a little bit. So she sees my face and knows who I am. And then um, sometimes I'll go up and see patients in pre-op that have come through the MDC um, that are coming in for their surgeries and just say hi and touch base with them. I go over to the imaging department and check on the mammogram technicians and see how they're doing with screenings because we put we give a screening form to everybody who comes in for a mammogram and try to do their tire cusic at the time of the mammogram to put that on the report. So yeah, so it's a little very and sometimes I go out in the community and I meet with people. We talk about the MBC or or genetics and increasing that education. So yeah, there's a lot of different different ways that we try to try to make an impact. Fantastic. Is there anything we didn't talk about that you want to touch on? No, I think we hit all the points. So wonderful. Wonderful. And so top three takeaway points for today. Okay. Well, one, talk to your family, talk to your family members, find out your history and start just jotting it down because, you know, it can change what we do for you and get you to live a healthier life and hopefully prevent cancer altogether. Um, Number two is just live healthy, right? We've got to exercise and eat well and fuel our bodies with what we need because that affects all of our cancer risks. And um, just advocate for yourself, you know, find good providers that you feel listen to you and hear you and are, are treating you as an individual and not just as a, just as a number in a, in a system where we have to do the same thing for everybody. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation. I think that we don't talk about genetics enough. And what I often find, and as I mentioned on the episode, is that many people are not aware either of their family history or that their family history puts them at increased cancer risk. So I think that my biggest takeaway for you from this episode is go make sure you are aware of your family history, ask your family members, not just the immediate family, but going out to grandparents and aunts and uncles. So going past those first degree relatives and take that family history to your primary care doctor, your gynecologist, whoever you feel comfortable with and ask them, you know, does this put me at risk? Should I see a genetic counselor? If you've already been diagnosed with cancer, it's really important to update your family history continuously, um, making sure that nothing needs to be changed in terms of screening, in terms of testing. And if you have been hesitant about genetic testing, I hope that this conversation may have helped you make some choices and decisions. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find Mary Jane Glade on Instagram at maryjane.dnp.mom3. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Dr. Toplinski. If you enjoyed this podcast or any others of the show, I am always honored if you can take a moment to leave a rating or review or both uh, on Apple Podcasts as that is the best way to help me grow the show and bring it to new listeners. Thank you all for listening and I will see you soon. Thank you.